Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. All right, welcome back to Savage to Sage. My name is Daniel, and I'm the co-host of Savage to Sage, along with my friend Kyle. And um, today I have the joy of being joined by Jason Butler. Jason is the CEO of RoboSource. Welcome, Jason. Thanks. Happy to chat. I'd love for you just to give a quick overview, elevator pitch of RoboSource, just so the audience is aware of what do you all do and what does the robo mean in your name? Yeah. So we are um, really the reason why I started this business because I'm passionate around helping people do meaningful, impactful work. I believe people wake up in the morning and they want to do something that matters. Um, and that is not key whacking a bunch of stuff into other websites or Excel sheets. And so what we do is we build software robots that help automate a lot of those mundane, repetitive, boring tasks that your team has to do. And that often has a, a tremendous ROI for your business. So that's what we focus on. I feel like I need to have a therapy session about um, key whacking and manual processes <laughs> because uh, at Full Stack, we're kind of making that evolution ourselves from you know startup to scale up company now. And to get to where we are today, there's been a lot of duct tape and key whacking. So, um, so yeah, so time for some therapy for me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You'd be amazed at how many companies are dealing with the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah. So I would love to hear more. I know when we met for lunch this summer, you described yourself as a serial entrepreneur and it's, it's almost like it's, it's in your blood and you realize that early on. So take us back to when you realized that for the first time and like, what was it that you made you realize like, man, I need to, I need to jump into creating my own thing. So, you know, what's interesting is I actually kind of stumbled into entrepreneurship, but as soon as I hit it, I just knew, you know, back I'm attending college in the, in the nineties, uh, the dot-com bubble is becoming a thing. It's starting to to uh, grow and grow. And it basically, if you could say the word internet, people were excited to throw money at you uh, to help them get a new website up and running, right? So that was really the environment I was in. So as I'm a, a sophomore in, in college, I'm given an opportunity to work for uh, an internet startup, and I'm being paid 90, 90 plus dollars per hour to, uh, to, build, to build software uh, and to build a website. So uh, at that time, you think, man, uh, I, at least at the time I looked at my wife or my wife to be, she was my girlfriend then. And I said, I'm making more money than my parents are. Why don't we go ahead and get married? So we proposed, uh, I got married and, and on my honeymoon, uh, the company I worked for went bankrupt, came back to, to nothing really. My wife and I looked at each other we're like, well, what are we going to do? I had two other people that I had been working with, uh, at that, uh, business. And we looked at each other and we said, Hey, we're pretty good at this. What if we what if we start a business? And so we started a web design business. We called it Platypus Design, and we went after it. Uh, right away, I knew it was it was right for me. Uh, it just was like uh, I loved the strategy, I loved the business conversations, I loved uh, the product, I loved working with the clients. I just knew it was right. Um, I was young and arrogant, made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of really dumb things, and uh, eventually, um, when my wife and I found out that we were unexpectedly pregnant three years later, my father-in-law looked at me and said, Hey, I think you need to get a real job. Uh, one that actually has insurance. And so, uh, that's when I, I actually shut that business down and went and got a job. 
Uh, I knew then and there I was not made for the corporate world. Uh, I worked for a year in a corporate setting, could not handle it, uh, and eventually ended up going out and uh, doing other things. Uh, so this is now my uh, third business that we've started. This has been going now for 11 years. I love it. So when you say I'm not meant for a corporate job, like talk about that. Like what, what did you learn in that scenario that just made you realize that? You know, I like to see a more holistic picture. Um, I like to see the, the big picture of what's going on within an organization and a business. And in the corporate world, I was often told, well, you don't need to worry about that. Here's the little sliver that we want you to solve. Uh, and so then I would go in and, it, you know, our, our business is technical and I have a technical background. So I would go in and solve a technical problem only to be told, well, that's not really solving the big picture problem because they never really filled me in on all of it. I wasn't privy to finance conversations and, and other aspects of the business. I liked having that kind of wider breadth of experience where I could be a part of marketing. I could be a part of strategy. I want to be a part of the technology, but I also want to work with HR. I also want to work with people. I wanted, I, I wanted a, a wider, paint with a broader stroke, I guess, uh, if that's a, a good way of saying it. So. Yeah. So maybe this will be exposing you to your family in a negative way, but I'm curious like what your father-in-law said after you learned that. Well, so what's interesting is they're now my biggest supporters. Uh, so uh, I think uh, in in watching me and sort of my emotional roller coaster uh, that that went on uh, as I was working in these other businesses, and um, you know, I eventually worked my way up to be vice president of a company. So it's not like I wasn't successful there. It's just I was not fulfilled, and and he knew that, and he sensed that. And uh, so when when Kendra and I started this business, they were they were our biggest supporters behind the scenes. I love it. So. When you think about those early days of you and Kendra standing up the business, and I mean, there's a unique story there too about starting a business with your wife as well, which yes. I'm sure you could talk a bit about and I'll, I'll ask some questions on, but we, we like to think of those days as the early savage days in this whole continuum of, of savage to sage. And I think you'd probably agree too, that we've had some guests recently share that, you know, as an entrepreneur and leading an entrepreneurial organization, you can't really ever leave the savage behind. But I think there are some things in the early days that I would say are very distinctly savage, like the pace and intensity uh, and hopefully evolves over time that makes it more sustainable for people like you. But what was it like in those early days standing it up with Kendra? So the early days, what ended up happening so when my first business failed, I started another one and it didn't do so well either. Um, I, I became very concerned that I wasn't uh, good enough business mind to be able to to run a startup. Uh, so that inspired me to go get a master's degree. So I went to the University of Notre Dame and got a master's in business. When I graduated, I basically set a timer for myself that nine months later, I was going to start this business because I was like, I've got all the knowledge I'm ever going to have. At this point, it's just experience. So... Um, we uh, quit our jobs. Well, I quit my job in uh, December, started this business in January, and uh, just went after it. Being in technology, uh, I'm not a necessarily a natural salesperson. I had to teach myself how to do that. And that was just a lot of boots on the ground, figuring out and making a lot of dumb mistakes. Uh, and so it was a lot of hard work and a lot of going after it. I also, you don't have anyone around you that you can be like, uh, hey, I'm going to hand this task to you. I'm going to delegate this over there. Like, if it's going to get done, you're going to do it. So the hours are just unreal. 
you know, it's, it's up early. It's not going to bed till two, three in the morning. Like it's, it's just, a, it's just a lot of work. Uh, I got to do the sales in the morning and then I actually have to deliver on what I sold in the evening. Uh, and, and that's what it looked like for, for probably about two or three years before I was able to really get my feet under me and had a, a good reputation and a good client base to be able to start to, to bring others in that I could help, you know, that could help get things done. What is unique for you about working with Kendra and, you know, partnering with your wife? What, what's that like to, or what has that been like to start a company with her and to grow it? So Kendra came in, uh, she wasn't with us really initially. I mean, she was because it was, uh, it's a joint effort between our family, but uh, she still was working another job to kind of help keep some cash coming in to get things moving for there for a while. About uh, three years in is when she kind of came on board and she came on board because to, to put it bluntly, I'm, I'm not very good at details. Uh, I'm a visionary. I'm a, I'm a go, go, go type of person. And there were a lot of balls that were getting dropped. And uh, as we were hiring people and they were like, you know, legal things I needed to be following up on that I just wasn't doing. She was like, I'm terrified that we're going to lose our house. So you need to do something about this. So she's like, I'm going to take this on. And next thing you know, she becomes an invaluable part of the team, probably has more and under, a better understanding of what's happening day over day in the business than I do. And uh, it, it got to a point where it was like, you know, you probably should be doing running this more than I should be because you actually are, are on top of everything that's happening. Uh, so that's kind of how she got involved. We are so different. And that's one of the, the most uh, powerful things in, in our marriage as well as in the business is uh, she is very much uh, a detail-oriented, uh, how-do-you-get-things-done type of person. And I am very much not. I'm... Uh, you know, I'm flying somewhere around the moon and she's, you know, walking the ground level. So that is a, a really powerful thing because uh, we can balance each other's strengths and weaknesses. But that also poses its challenges um, when, you know, she's like, this is a really simple thing you need to get done. And I'm wanting to talk about what the implications might be 10 years from now. Uh, and so there's some challenge that happens there. Probably the hardest part is coming home at night and just leaving it at work, like being frustrated with your coworker but loving your wife when you walk in the door, uh, there, there's a challenge there. But uh, Kendra is really good at that. Uh, she's able to kind of make that shift. Uh, and uh, she's if you've ever met my wife, she just has an infectious personality and an infectious smile. So we walk in the door, she smiles, and, and we're fine. So I love it. Talk about that a little bit, because I, I think a lot of people experience that like challenge with work-life separation you know, once COVID hit and work went home for so many people and even just the transition from, okay, I'm my bedroom is my office during the day and now it's my bedroom at night. What has been key for you and Kendra to, uh, I guess there's the separation, but also the, the integration since work is with you and home is with you all the time. Yeah. Uh, actually, the best thing for us was has been our children. So um, I have a 20-year-old girl and a 17-year-old boy. Uh, and so while this was going on and, and while we're kind of getting the business up and running, we'd come home and, and over dinner, right, you start to talk about your day. Well, Kendra and I were having an ongoing conversation about a meeting that we'd had. Uh, and the kids were obviously not a part of that meeting. So they were kind of left out. Uh, I was appreciative of my my daughter who basically at one point said, all right, this is enough. We don't want to talk work anymore. Like, like you're, you guys are here, which was kind of a, a unique uh, switch of roles for us. 
but it, it made Kendra and I aware of it. And so from that point forward, it was like, no, we're not talking work at the, at the dinner table. We're not talking work around the kids because uh, both of my kids have said, there's no way they're starting a business because they know what nightmare we've gone through. And so it's like, they, they don't want a part of that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's healthy for them, right? They saw it. They, they saw Kendra and I work through conflict, uh, but also love one another deeply and then uh, be able to kind of set that aside and say, no, family is important. For us personally, we need to recharge through travel. Um, and so that's what we do a lot of. Uh, we made it a goal with our kids to get to as many national parks as we could get to. I think we're something like 37 uh, that we've been to. And each one of them we go to with them, we hike. And uh, that was that's our disconnect. Um, and it's our disconnect with our family. So that was a really vital part of our early years, the, the savage years of the business, as well as kind of the maturing years with our children. Can you name that your favorite national park pretty quickly? Zion. Zion National Park is my favorite. You know, I mean, Yosemite's gorgeous, but some of the hikes at Zion are unbelievable. So, Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, I was just in Zion country uh, back in September and um, actually recorded a show about it because I got stuck in a flash flood uh, ah. in, in a slot canyon near there. Yeah, that's, and, um, that's terrifying. <laughs> it was, yeah. I survived to tell the story, thankfully. Uh, but yeah, that... There's something just so rugged about that that area of the country, but yeah, I I also see that area of the country as well as you know parks like that for for disconnect um, and just I think resetting in so many ways um, because you know with our lives surrounded by screens and technology and the the 24 hour news cycle and then what our kids go through as well in, in a similar way I think it's it's just so important to connect with with nature in that way. So, yeah, there's nothing like sitting on top of a mountain overlooking a valley and put it to put life into perspective. And, uh, to sit, so I remember when we went to Zion, my, my son was young around the time about nine and we hiked the narrows. Uh, and, uh, so it was a little slot cannon. You're walking through water that's up to your knees. It was up to his waist, but you know, so we're walking through it and we'd been in there for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And, uh, I mean, it, it feels rugged. It feels adventurous, right? And he looks at me and he goes, Dad, this is the best day of my life. And I was like, <laughs> me too, buddy. Me too. Like, uh, you, you just can't pass that up. So, Yeah, I love it. Well, I will come back to that as well because I think one of my points that I'm trying to promote through the show is self-care and soul care, uh, which I try, I try to differentiate term soul care you could take it a number of different ways to to mean really taking care of the most important parts of our humanity uh, and where self-care i think tends to get interpreted as like okay jason got his favorite latte at starbucks today which is you know is great if you like that but it's it's very superficial i think that's such a key component to how, for entrepreneurs in particular of how we endure the challenges of entrepreneurship that come up and just the unique pace and intensity and it requires to stand up and to grow and to survive, you know, have a small business survive. And then the unique pressure and headspace, I think that we, that you carry as an entrepreneur. So like, I'm curious about that headspace piece because it's, it's so difficult to, I think for people like you to shut off, uh, and I know you're talking about work-life separation, shutting that off at the dinner table, but 
and you mentioned disconnecting through nature, but what's been key for you to to shut off that so you don't burn out and run your body into the ground as well? You know, uh, burnout is real um, and, and burnout is difficult to struggle with. Um, for me, burnout isn't so much the physical burnout as it is just the mental exhaustion. And that mental exhaustion comes about just from, you got to have real thick skin uh, as an entrepreneur. And it, it can be exhausting at times. And uh, in my opinion, and in my experience, most entrepreneurs are uh, maybe overly optimistic individuals. Uh, I think you have to be a little bit neurotic to even want to start a business. So uh, they, they tend to be irrationally optimistic about things. But if you go a couple of days without getting something that you can be optimistic about, your, your headspace gets real hard um, because that's that's what we feed on. And and at least that's what I feed on is is I need those wins. And if I have a, go a day or two without a win, it is really hard to keep that mind right. I've had to really focus on that in the last couple of years. Uh, for me personally, uh, being a, a, a man of faith, my mornings start out with a time of prayer and meditation. And that is mostly a mindset piece for me. Um, I, I journal because I journal my prayers out because that just helps me kind of organize my thoughts. But then from there, it's like I spend 10 minutes in just quiet, meditative prayer, working on my mind, my mindset, because it was interesting. Uh, I, about six months ago, I went to a, a I'd been doing it for about a year. Uh, I went a week without doing it. And my team mentioned to me that something was wrong. I was like, Oh, my mind, my mind's off. <laughs> I was like, and I, and, and it came through and the team knew. And, uh, so it, it does take uh, intentional time for me to to set myself aside, quiet my soul, um, and and give my mind space to to put things into perspective. I think the urgency of this world can sometimes blow things out of proportion, and uh, that's that can be difficult to manage if you're not if you're not okay on there. That's powerful that your team gave you that feedback too. I think it's. It's just a reminder that it, this could this could be interpreted in the wrong way, maybe to encourage narcissism. But but I think you know that people, especially our teams, are always watching, and they they pick up more than we realize in terms of their what they interpret, what they intuit, you know, about our interactions with them. And so, but that's in a in a healthy way. It sounds like you've created some accountability around you with your team to give you to give you that good feedback um especially in such an essential area for you um just taking care of yourself so um i i like to talk about like team in particular and when that characteristic that you mentioned of your team just that willingness to give you know hard feedback and kind of hold a mirror up to you what has it been? What I guess I should ask: What has been key for you and Kendra in finding those early team members outside of yourself? Like, what are you looking for in those folks? So, right off the bat, when Kendra and I started the business, it was always about creating meaningful work. Uh, it's just that's an area that resonates with us. Is is we want to do work that matters uh, and work that's, that feels important and impactful. So early on, we started what we call an apprenticeship program. And uh, our apprenticeship program, basically what we do is we bring in juniors and seniors in college for a two-year apprenticeship that work on our team with our team members for the whole time they're in school. So 40 hours a week during the summer, 15 to 20 hours a week during the school year, and they'll be with us for two full years. Part of that is because it's us giving back in in software and maybe in all 
all trades. I don't know how, I mean, school is important and it shows that you can learn and that you can teach and that you can practically apply things. The end of the day, doing it is very different than what you learn in school. And we feel that way, especially with software. So I want you to learn all the stuff and and all the computer science techniques and all of that in school. Yes. But at the end of the day, I want your hands on a keyboard actually building software. Uh, You're going to learn a lot that way. So that's how we started out. That's how we then started forming our early team members uh, is uh, we were looking for people that that expressed our value systems. Um, So we've got four values we talk about. uh, Crownless King, which is sort of a uh, it's a selfless leadership. You don't need to have the crown in order to lead people. We have another one we call Phalanx, which, you know, like in the movie 300, Sparta, they lock the shields together and, and they move forward as one. Like that's a team oriented orientation. And so we protect one another. Uh, and uh, all of us play our part in order to protect each other. That's another one. Uh, we've got another one that, that we call the, the figure it out gene. We're in technology. Most of the solutions that I need to come up with either haven't been created or are being invented right now. And so if you're coming in expecting to have everything figured out, you're not going to. We need you to have just kind of that DNA built into you that's like, you're going to figure out how to solve problems. Uh, that's important to us. And, and then our last one is that idea of Kaizen, that we're looking for continuous improvement on a daily basis. I'm not asking for 100%, but just give me 1% a day and work to make yourself better. Those are the values that we that we drive off of. So when we bring in our apprentices, part of what we're looking for is that. Uh, and uh, we actually have um, code reviews that we go through uh, that uh, help kind of exemplify those. So in our code reviews, we're talking about those value systems. Uh, when our apprentices come in in the summer, because we usually bring them in in groups of like five or six, uh, I write code and I submitted myself to them for code review uh, just as a way of showing, hey, even the owner of the company is going to humbly accept your opinions and make changes accordingly. Uh, so every time I do that, we get like 150 comments on my code because they think it's hilarious that they can they can tell me what's right and wrong and what I wrote. But I go through and I fix every one of them, right? And uh, because it's modeling, it's it's modeling that this is the way we want interactions to happen. Um, we're going to give you honest feedback because it's going to help you grow, and you're going to give us honest feedback because it's going to help us grow. And uh, that's how we model it. So I thought really our apprenticeship program is what kind of drives our culture and makes us who we are i love it and i think that's the first and probably only time i'll hear the word phalanx as one a cultural value for a company but uh, <laughs> yes that's that's a new one for me it's great uh, yeah i i think often we you know ha- being a part of like strategic human resources conversations and organizational development conversations that I'm a part of, you know, you hear values tossed around quite a bit and, you know, and I've been a part of a number of organizations and companies myself where it's like, wow, these values sound great, but you know, are they actually being lived out and are, is this a living and breathing organism or is this just, was this just an activity that we did with a consultant, you know, in our strategic planning that, lives you know on a google doc or a poster on the the office wall i hear you saying like you're working really hard to exemplify these values and all of your interactions but how do you how do you get your team to subscribe to those and and also just do continuous review of those not in a analysis paralysis sort of way but like almost like how are we doing with these like what does that look like 
So this is this is all on Kendra. Uh, so what Kendra did is she basically came in and she said, "Hey, um, she made little stickers that are the icons of each of our of our logo or each of our uh, core values, and they're like decals. Uh, they're really small." Uh, and she communicated with the team and said, hey, if you ever catch somebody exemplifying one of our values, I want you to issue them this sticker, kind of like Ohio State does with their football helmets, right? <laughs> um, she said, so uh, I want you to, you know, just in the Slack channel called Core Values, I want you to call out who did this and issue them a sticker. And then people started putting them on the backs of their computers. Uh, the whole team has, has rallied behind that. Uh, so, uh, just today we had, uh, someone give a crownless King because another member of our team's, uh, wife ended up in the hospital and he just picked up his work and didn't even tell the other and didn't even tell him he just got it done. And so that guy got to work, came back that night, tried to get in to do his work and realized it was already done, figured out that this individual had done it, went on a core value and said, Hey, I'm issuing a crownless King to, to this individual because he just pulled he just did my work for me because he just, he knew I needed help. Now he could have also done phalanx on that too, right? So sometimes there's a little overlap, but he saw that as a as a leadership, a selfless leadership thing, and that happens probably three or four times a week. And it's the team is just keeping it front and center. Um, now, one of the things that helps us though is we do have the, these uh, apprentices that come in every summer, and so when those apprentices come in, we get a, a spike of energy. Uh, there's five new, I call them kids, right? Eighteen, nineteen year olds. There, that are in here sometimes for the first time in a in a business environment where they're in a technology place where they're doing what they want to do. They are very excited, so we get a chance every year to kind of reset and and say to the team, "Hey, look, model these values. Make sure you're communicating with the apprentices and, and highlight when they're doing the right things because this is the first time they're learning how to do this, and uh, we we got to really make sure we're we're exemplary at that. So it, every year we end up kind of getting an uh, I guess an inadvertent reset on the value systems because we bring in these influx of people uh, into our team. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think how you, how you're leveraging that, I, you know, is really important to be, and the type of people that you have, because I could see that in certain environments where, you know, you get the proverbial like eye roll of, you know, Oh, here's the young people again, you know, rosy eyes telling us all you know how we should be doing this better uh, but you've leveraged it for this is a, a mutual opportunity for them to to learn and get a taste of you know what life is like outside of academic institutions and um, what they're going to be getting into but then also you're saying like how how can we open ourselves up to fresh perspective and so i think yeah that's that's a really powerful combination yeah, it's been really important for us. Um, it, it does mean that the kinds of people that I hire have to be open and excited about training and, and mentoring and coaching people. Um, and that's one of those interview questions that comes up uh, for us is give us practical examples of how and when you've done that. Because if you're not wired that way, you won't be successful here. <laughs> so because it's just it's part of our fabric. It's who we are. Yeah, that was another one of my questions is and it comes up often. It's like how do you how do you screen for that? Because I think oh, we can either fall into this trap like there's a couple different traps of in the hiring and screening process where there's the two that come to mind are one is we just end up hiring people that we know who are friends of ours 
Um, and we don't really ever get out of that circle because we've learned, you know, to trust them and trust our relationship with them and our experience with them. And then the other trap is, you know, you asked that question you just did and you end up taking hook, line and sinker somebody that, you know, just is interviewing well. And then when you get, you get into the reality of the, the work relationship, they, they don't end up exhibiting any of the characteristics they interviewed so well on what's been key for you and Kendra and in that screening process to kind of figure out, okay, is this real? Yeah, we've, we've been, again, fortunate because of the apprenticeship model. So uh, we don't hire a lot of uh, uh, engineers that are outside of the apprenticeship. If we're hiring engineers, we're trying to hire from within our apprentice pool. Uh, So we've had over a hundred apprentices come through our our program. Uh, So we hire as many of those as we can. As a result, one of the neat things is uh, we get a chance to interview them kind of in group. So, yes, there's an individual conversation, but one of the things we do is we'll bring them in uh, to a, uh, an on-site interview with five other apprentices that are applying for the same positions. And we put them into a room together with a whiteboard, and we record them actually solving a problem on the whiteboard together as a team. Uh, because that egg shows us some of the way that they interact with one another. You can quickly figure out which ones are going to be condescending. Um, it comes out really fast. Uh, you can figure out the ones that are really kind of smart, but sit in the back and just kind of observe and then come in with that golden truth. That's like all oh, this nugget where they just solve a problem really quick. And you're like, wow, that was amazing. And then the entire, the rest of our team all actually watches that video and grades them on their core value experience on what they see going on there. Now we also have the individual conversations and the other things that uh, more of a traditional interview, but that one piece for us probably gives us a better insight into how an individual works within a team and how they uh, interact with each other in terms of problem solving and the humility that they show. Technical people, engineers uh, are very, very smart people. And, and that's one of their greatest strengths that can inadvertently create a lot of arrogance as well. And uh, so we, we really want to filter for that because the last thing I want is an apprentice coming in and having what they think is a great idea and someone being like, what were you thinking? That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Well, we're just destroying morale at that point. Um, I, want to, I want to dig in and be like, what were you thinking on this? How is it working? Like, what, what was your thought process? Help me get to where you're at. I've always find when we do that, that the, the apprentices nine out of 10 times figure it out for themselves that it's not a great idea. And they feel good about themselves because they got to be a part of the solution. Um, so we have to be very careful with the arrogance piece. Uh, because the, if, if we have people that are coming in and saying things like, idiot, why'd you do that? It, they'll just shut down. Um, and, and then we lose any opportunity we have for someone that might be a phenomenal uh, resource. Yeah. And interestingly, you said, the question, what were you thinking? But your tone, you know, was different in in the two ways you asked it. And like the one way was just like condescending. And then the other way was, I mean, I think it was a part of a larger question of like, what were you thinking when you, you know, presented this idea? Yeah, I've heard that quite a bit as a, as a solution uh, for technical hiring in particular, uh, where you have, you know, you're almost like you're diving into a random code project together and just, but you're right. It has to work on both ends where you have to have teammates who have a developmental open approach and to the candidate to not scare them off. And then also it tells you a lot about the candidate too. So that's good. Um, I want to just 
as we wrap up the conversation today, just pivot back to kind of you personally as an entrepreneur. And one of the things, it's kind of that idea, and you mentioned being like a spiritual person yourself, but this whole idea of like being refined by fire or like the heat, ex- the heat exposes all the impurities. I think I've found in all of the entrepreneurship stories that I've heard with people that are, you know, are truly authentic and are reflective people that that they've had some of the the most serious blind spots exposed of like wow I'm you know I'm a horrible person in this way or man I I'm severely deficient in these areas or and I guess it's it's that painful part of self-awareness that is not the sexy thing that's on your strengths finder but it's more of like <laughs> wow like I've got some work to do here are you willing to share an example or a story or two of like, this was a kind of a painful story or a personal test that came up that helped me to help humble me and, and what you learned from that? Yeah. So it actually is from the very first company I started, uh, Platypus Design back in college. Part of the reason I'm so sensitive to arrogant engineers and the way that we treat people is because I was horrible at it. Uh, it was probably one of the most arrogant people you'd have met early in my career. Made some mistakes. So when we started this company, it was a three-way partnership back in the 90s. I had some advice. Some people had advised me that uh, I was very talented, had a lot of uh, business acumen, and that uh, I should be running the company. In some ways, attempted a hostile takeover of friends and uh, ended up burning a lot of relationships. And uh, when it was all said and done, and I now have this company and I'm now running it, uh, frankly, it was empty to me. Uh, I found I lost my passion for it and uh, that I was somewhat embarrassed about who I had become and what I had done. Uh, So even though my father-in-law said to me at that time, right, hey, go get a real job. uh, I think my emotional state was one of like, I don't like what this made me and I don't want to be this again. Um, So uh, I ended up uh, shutting that down and moving on because frankly, I was embarrassed by myself uh, and didn't like who I had become and what I did in, in order to gain power, essentially, in a small little business that was among friends. Uh, so that was an embarrassing, horrifying moment for me. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, came to grips with it, uh, went on and apologized to the individuals um, about five, seven years later about what I did and how I did it. But um, it changed my perspective on business. One of the complaints that I probably my business coaches around me have is that I'm far too willing to just give things away for the sake of a relationship. But that's a direct reflection of that experience that I had early in my life, in my career, where um, to me, the relationship is far more important than the money. And uh, so now it creates a different weakness for me. And so I have other people around me to help manage that. But um, I care far more about the person and the and the, the people and making sure I'm helping them do things that are meaningful and impactful and uh, helping their lives be better. And I'm not as, I, I mean, it's a business. I, 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 I want to be successful. I want to grow this thing like crazy, right? I'd love to be the next unicorn. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not worth sacrificing people along the way to get there. And uh, that's a lesson I learned in my early 20s. It took me most of my 20s to come to grips with my activity and my actions so that by the time I started this one in my 30s, I'm, I was uh, a little more aware of who I was as a person and what values I was willing to compromise in order to accomplish the goals that I had for myself. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I think a lot of people relate to that 
story and like a, a similar pain that they've experienced, but then also that that transition or that transformation you made. I, I also know that from reality and like similar transitions or transformations I've made when I've realized, um, you know, this this isn't working anymore. And this is the collateral damage I've left in my wake that it it's most of the time it's just not this overnight shift. Um, like I'm going to stop doing that, but it's in some cases it's a, a deep, painful, like long process that requires a lot of intentionality. Um, so what would you say was key for you in that transition process to go from kind of what, where you are now to where you were prior? So, um, first of all, I, I had to admit that I didn't like who I was. And I knew there was something off when I had done that, but I didn't know what it was. So that took me about a year to realize that, man, I was kind of embarrassed by the way I acted. Uh, and that wasn't the, the way I wanted to be. But I didn't know how to fix it. I just knew that um, I didn't like the outcome. On the flip side, sometimes uh, arrogance and confidence, there's a fine line between. And that, uh, that confidence, frankly, in a lot of ways, is what makes me me. And... Uh, the ability to come in and confidently say, yes, I have a solution for you. And here, let me outline it and we'll solve the problem this way. Like uh, that in a lot of ways is what made me really good at my job. Uh, so it was really hard to see that actually I was arrogant uh, and not confident. What really exposed that for me was when um, I, I knew that I had made a lot of mistakes on the business front, the first business I ran with Platypus Design. I knew I didn't understand accounting. I knew I didn't understand a whole series of things. So I was like, I need to go back to school and, and get this. So when my wife talked me into going uh, to Notre Dame to get my MBA, I did the executive program. Uh, and so the executive program at the time I went, we'd go up on Wednesday afternoon, we'd do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday classes, uh, once a month. And then you'd have another month to do all your homework. And then you'd come back again for the next month. And I did that for 22 months. Uh, in order to be in that program, you also had to be an executive at a company. That's when I was vice president of IT for a company in Indianapolis at the same time. That process uh, I was surrounded by very high quality people, people that frankly were multiple levels above anything I will ever become. And uh, they were just very, very high quality people. And they uh, did a phenomenal job of lovingly helping me become aware that I'm not all I thought I was. And that process at Notre Dame actually was one of the most eye-opening processes for me because they they were able to, my peers, I'm not talking about the the teachers, my peers were in their 50s. They were partners at KPMG. They were uh, chief accounting officers of eBay. Like, like we're talking significant people that would sit down with me over dinner and just have a conversation around how I was presenting myself. It made me very aware uh, of who I was and what I was becoming and that I needed to make some changes. And so that process, frankly, uh, Notre Dame was probably the point where it's like, this is different. I need to change. And there are some values that I hold personally that I'm not doing a good job of of sharing. And so that was, for me, that was a, a revolutionary moment. Uh, and Notre Dame ended up being very impactful, not just because I got the master's degree. That's awesome, right? I'm proud of that. But that really wasn't the end of it. It was the personal change that, that my peers helped drive in me as a result of my time at Notre Dame. Yeah, man, such good wisdom there. And I, I, I think of these, both the awareness and ownership that you're, you've exhibited that is is the first step it's like kind of like your awareness and like own 
I have I have a challenge. And then also I think the next level is then exposing that to others and like allowing their feedback, allowing their shaping in the process. And then I mean it, it requires them also to do what you said to lovingly, kindly like walk you toward a new level of understanding as well as next steps of like how how you can move forward. And um I think that combination, like you have you really have to have both. I think the people that are creating toxic cultures and you know I've I've been a part of creating toxic cultures like you in the past is like either there's a lack of awareness or an ownership on my part, or there was a, you know, just a lack of people that were willing to love me in the way that spoke the hard truth, like you, you mentioned. And I, that one, two punch is, is really powerful to, to create what you've created. And I, I see it as like a great foundation, you know, for you and Kendra to build RoboSource on and, and then, you know, to, to leave, like I, I think a lot about finishing well and like so much of entrepreneurship seems at least literature out there seems to be focused on on starting well and then you know exiting. But like I think about what what collateral damage is done in that process of like savagery of like starting a company to to sell it, you know, to make a lot of money. Like usually that that story often is filled with you know, a lot of stories of broken marriages, you know, partners, like business partners having a falling out, you know, toxic cultures. And it's, it's sort of like, what, what was this? This was a great financial gain, but what, what was the cost of that process? And I, I think that's what I'm trying to get to. in this whole like savage to stage idea is that there is another way and it's finishing. Well, it's saying, you know, when, when we're, we leave this earth, you know, that people can look back and say, Jason, man, it really impacted my life in this way. And, you know, you, you leave this legacy for good that lives beyond you. You know, that's what I, it seems like you're building. And, and so I'm, I'm just really grateful to know you and um, that you are willing to share a little bit of that. I'm curious, to, I like to, to end with, two kind of lightning round questions. So kind of answering them like as quickly as possible. But if you had an hour to during the day, obviously you can't go to a national park, um, but like <laughs> just to recharge and just to reset, you know, your mindset, like what would you choose to do? Uh, I would sit by my fireplace and read a book. So I love it. Tends to be Many. a leadership book or a mindset book, but yes, I would read a book. <laughs> I was I was wondering if you were going to say some random fiction or sci-fi, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I like those too, but that tends to be before I go to bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> same here. That's my get out of work brain and get into yes. sleep mode. Is re- <laughs> yes. disconnect and read some fiction. So, I love it. Uh, and then think about like that person who's where you were many years ago. Um, not trying to age you by that comment, but um, when <laughs> when you first started and you decided I'm I'm going to launch out, like what would you tell them as like this is a key thing for you to focus your energy and time on in in those early stages? I think I'm stealing this from a an entrepreneur named Dan Sullivan, but uh, uh, who is more important than how? 
I spent too much time trying to figure out how to solve a problem and not enough time finding who I know that can help solve the problem more effectively than I can. Uh, and the more people I found that could solve the problems for me, the better my business became. Um, and eventually, there are some hows that I'm really good at doing. Uh, that is where our business came from. Um, but it's more important for me to find who to surround myself with than it was for me to figure out how I was going to build a business. That's so good. And that that title is Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. And I actually, a mutual friend of ours recommended that a couple of years ago. And I remember it sitting on my bookshelf. I got it from the library because um, I was I went through one of those bad habits of just buying every book and spending way too much money. <laughs> and so yeah. I was like, I'm going to get this for free from the library. And it just sat there. And admittedly, I never touched it. But that's a that's a really good reminder. Uh, and I think will be a great resource for folks. But yeah, so really good advice. And Jason, thank you for your sageness that you offered uh, today. I think this is going to be really powerful. Listen to the audience. And I'm just grateful to know you. Well, thanks a lot, Daniel. It was fun to be here. Thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to get in touch with you and RoboSource, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the website is robosource.us. Uh, and my email address is uh, jason butler at robosource.us. Awesome. And I know your butler is spelled a little bit uniquely, so that'll be included in the show notes. So people can blitz yes, your inbox is. after this. Oh, that sounds yeah. good. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Well, take care, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.